So, I don't know about you, but whenever I look up at the stars at night, I'm always a little bit disappointed. And here's why. I always hear, and I even see in the Bible, we'll see that in a second, about the heavens having so many stars. And yet when I look up there, because of the street lights and the city lights, I see like 10. And I have to squint to see them. Maybe that's just my experience. I'm exaggerating, but I don't see that many. But it turns out that there are actually a lot of stars. Anybody have any idea of how many stars scientists say are visible from the Earth? Where's Anastasia when you need her? She would know. Does anybody know? Anybody can guess? A hundred? Thousand? Two thousand? It's around 10,000. Scientists say around five to ten. The question is, what kind of range is that? 50% off? That's what they say. Five to ten. But that's how many stars are visible from the Earth as a whole. But at any given time, half of the Earth has daylight. Okay? So that means if you look up there, on one side of the Earth, you'll see anywhere between 5,000 and 2,500 stars without any light pollution. That's how many stars are actually visible. Now, that's a lot of stars. It doesn't seem 2,000, 2,500, 5,000, may not seem like a lot, but imagine you were told to count that many. Does anybody ever try to count the stars? Even with just a few hundred, it's hard to count. And the reason it's hard to count is, first off, it's hard to count that high. Who, who ever counted something to 1,000? Who's ever given a task? Count 1,000 little pieces of rice. It'd be like torture. Who would want to do that? So one, just counting. Physically counting up to 1,000 is difficult. The other difficulty about counting to the stars is it would be easy to forget where you counted. Did I, is it that one or that one? It would be very difficult to just be able to keep track. So there's around 2,500 to 5,000 stars that are visible at any given time of the Earth. Now, to put this in perspective, if you grab a handful of sand, just a handful, there's about 10,000 grains of sand in that handful. Now, if you take out half of that handful of sand, then you have about as many stars as you could possibly have, as you could possibly see any time of the Earth. Now, how much sand is there on the entire Earth? Well, I went and looked this up. It's 7.56 trillion grains of sand. What is that? That sounds like a made-up number. I'll say that again, 7.56 trillion grains of sand. That is 75 followed by 17 zeros, which is a number that's ridiculous. You can't even possibly conceive of that. Well, I was interested. I wondered, is there more sand or are there more stars? You know, it's like a Jeopardy question. What would you say? Is there more pieces of grain of sand or are there more stars in the universe? What do you think? Well, Tom says more stars. You're right. There are more stars. In fact, there are 70, point, I mean 70 septillion stars. Another made-up number. So one's sextillion and one's septillion, whatever that means. Well, so to kind of conceptualize this, uh, septillion is seven followed by 23 zeros. And so here's a way to realize this, the size difference between how many stars there are versus how many grains of sand. For every grain of sand, just imagine grabbing a grain of sand. For every grain of sand, there are 10,000 stars. I want you to think about that. Just imagine that. For every grain of sand, and there's billions and billions and septillions, numbers you can't even conceive of, 
There are 10,000 for every grain of sand. That's a lot of stars. That's the point. There are tons and tons of stars out there. So here's the question. Why am I going on and on and about this? Well, how should we think in light of that? When we realize that there are that many stars, and by the way, if there are that many stars, then how big is the universe that contains all the stars? Think about that. When you realize how big the universe is, how should that affect your thinking? How does that affect your theology? How small or big should you feel after contemplating that reality? To give that one more perspective, just hopefully you get to see how big our universe is and how small you are. The Earth, which is a lot bigger than you, by the way, is 0.0003% of the total mass of our solar system. That's just our solar system. And there's thousands, if not millions, of these things. So we are tiny and seemingly insignificant. So how should we theologize? How should our thinking relate to the fact that the universe is so big and yet we are so small? All right, we're going to try to answer that in our passage. So please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 5 and we go down to verse 10. Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. For he has not put the world to come, for which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So let's look at that verse Verse again, for he has not put the word to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but in one place, uh, but one testified in a certain place saying, and then he quotes the passage. So we saw last time that our passage begins with him speaking about the fact that he had previously spoken about the world to come. And last time we saw, I'm not going to do it again, we looked at chapter one and chapter two and saw there was no explicit reference to the world to come. He says, the world to come, which we were speaking of, but we didn't see any explicit reference. And what we did was we looked at all the references previous to this and saw that the reason he could speak in this way and refer to the fact that he had been talking about the world to come, even though he didn't use that word, is that our salvation is eschatological. Sounds like eschatology. It has Our salvation primarily deals with end times. That yes, we are saved, and yes, the Bible speaks about us being saved, and it also talks about people who are damned, and people are being damned. So we have the past tense, and the present tense, and the progressive tense. We have those realities, right? But let's think about the damned for a second. People are currently damned, right? And they're being damned. People, are, people perish, and people are perishing. But primarily, you look out there on the Lord's day and go traveling around, and you see those damned people, do they look happy? They're eating at restaurants. They're laughing. They're joking. Do they look damned? They're not. What I'm trying to say is damnation is primarily not a, 
this present reality, right? The, the Bible's full of complaints about how the wicked prosper. Those damn people are prospering and doing just fine. Because damnation is not primarily a present reality, but it's primarily a future reality, right? Damnation, hell, is ultimately primarily something that will happen in the future. And in the same way, salvation, people are saved right now. Hopefully, there's a room full of saved people and people being saved. But salvation is primarily going to happen at the eschaton, at the last day. Salvation is primarily a future reality. And so when we think about our salvation, we should be primarily thinking about the fact that we are saved now and being saved for a future salvation. In other words, our hope, our dreams, our aspirations should be primarily forward-looking. We should be forward-looking people. What are the three great character traits of a Christian? Faith, hope, and love. Faith is now, love is now, and hope is a future orientation. You hope not for what you have, but what will come. And hopefully that hope is primarily the age to come, salvation. So he goes back and says that he had been previously speaking about the world to come. But then look in verse 6. He transitions from speaking about what he said to what he is going to say and looking forward. And he says, but one testified in a certain place saying. And here he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. And this is a short Psalm of David. So why don't you go ahead and turn there and we'll look at Psalm chapter 8. But as you turn there, I want you to contemplate something. Did you notice how he introduced this passage? He says, but one testified in a certain place. Now, you've probably heard a lot of sermons, and in good sermons, people should be illustrating their points by the Bible, right? Not just the preacher's thoughts and opinions, but through Scripture, and something suggests to me, you probably haven't heard many scriptures quoted in this way, but one testified in a certain place. Right, Bible people? Is that usually how we quote the Bible? Generally not. Generally we'll say, David said, or the psalmist said, or even be more specific in Psalm 8, verse so-and-so. Now, of course, chapter divisions and verses didn't come until later, but even in the Bible, it's very common for them to say, David said this, or David said that, or Moses said, or in the law of Moses, right? You guys have seen that all throughout your Bibles, quotations like that all the time. And yet here, we don't see that. Instead, it's this kind of strange, indirect citation, but one testified in a certain place. Now, he had to know the place. He had to know that this place was in Psalm, in the Psalms, in the Psalter, and he certainly knew that it was David. So why does he quote it in this way. Well, he does, it'd be one thing if he just said it here, but he does the same thing in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. He says, there, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So we see a pattern. We see it in chapter 2, we see it in chapter 4. So why, again, does he speak in this way? Now, some argue it's just stylistic. This is just how the author likes to quote certain citations. And that's certainly possible. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with giving indefinite citations. And sometimes you probably even hear it from the pulpit. People say, commentators say, or a pastor once said, right? People say that. People just do indefinite, indefinite uh, references for various reasons. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. We see the same thing when people quote Scripture. Some people believe, and I've actually read in books, that you need to memorize Scripture from only one translation, and you need to have it perfect, 
you need to know exactly if it's by or through. I mean, it needs to be 100% perfect, otherwise don't quote it. I've read things like that. Others have the philosophy, as long as you get the gist of it, you can quote it from various translations, as long as you communicate the meaning. Which one's true? It's a matter of personal preference. Right? You, and some people might even get mad about me saying that. Some say, it must be this way, it must be that way. But the fact is, if you study even the citations in the Bible, you, which, you know what you'll discover? It's just like that. Some people quote it, boom, exactly from the LSX or exactly from the Hebrew. And some people do more of a conflation meaning of the Old Testament reference. The fact is that people quote things in different ways, and we should have tolerance. We should have love. We should respect that some people have different views, and certain people like to quote things differently. And we can pick our sides, but ultimately we should love people. Augustine famously said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Just because somebody doesn't quote things the way that we want them to quote, that's fine. You're not them. Communication is about transferring messages from one person to another. That's all communication is about. As long as you're getting what they're saying, that's good enough. I know that's hard for some of us uh, prescriptive grammar people that has to, it has to be this way, otherwise it's wrong. We'll put the red ink on everybody's emails and stuff like that. But if you're getting the message, that's all communication is meant for. It's not to impress you. It's not to hit all the grammar points. It's just to communicate a message from one person to another. So the first explanation is simply that this is just stylistic preference, and we learn that we need to be charitable towards other people's styles and just make sure that we're understanding the message. But there may be something else going on here. It may be, and many commentators say this, that the author is trying to minimize the human origin of the author. The reason he's speaking like this is because he doesn't want to say the psalmist and he doesn't want to say David because it's really not relevant. The fact that it comes from David and the fact that it comes from the psalm isn't his reason he's citing it. What he wants to emphasize is its divine origin. And now, this is a very good point for us to remember. Yes, we know that the authors were human. We know that Moses wrote certain things. Solomon wrote certain things. David wrote certain things. Mo- you know, all these people. But we need to go beyond that, and we need to realize that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you're reading the Scripture, we should primarily be focusing on the fact that it's of divine origin. It's not just a history book. It's not just fascinating thoughts that this is what Moses thought, or this is what Solomon thought, or this is what David thought, but this is ultimately one cohesive book written by God. And we need to remember that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit of the joint and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. This is the way that we need to view the Bible, primarily, primarily focusing on its divine origin. And this is the only book that has been given by the inspiration of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this book is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of the soul and the spirit? If you do, here's my question for you. Are you treating the Bible in that way? You say you do. You say you believe it's the word of God. It's by direct inspiration of God that it's unique in that way. But are you treating it that way? And what would treating it that way look like? Just, Just think about that. If you really treated this as the word of God, what would it look like? Hopefully, the answer would be reflecting in your life. But I think 
even if we do treat it the Word of God, we probably don't treat it as much as the Word of God as we ought to. If we viewed it as the Word of God a little bit more, maybe we would act a little bit differently. Here's one application. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. So one way you treat it as the Word of God is realize that you need it. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, if we believe that, maybe we'll be less quick to check our Twitter feeds, our Instagrams, our Facebooks, Fox News, and anything else, CNN, whatever you get your news from, and be more quick to go to the Word of God. We'll be less inclined to listen to even Christian books that are helpful, but more likely to go straight to the source. You remember, I don't know if you've read Augustine's Confessions. I have. It's a very good good book. And in his confessions, right before he got saved, he heard something. I know Neil knows. He heard something, right? He was in the garden. He heard some children saying, I have the Latin here, but I'm afraid to say it because some of you actually know Latin. So I'll just give you the English. Take up and read. Take up and read. That's what he heard over and over. Take up and read. And he picked up the scriptures and read. And so that's something for us to think about. Take up and read. This is the word of God. It's divine in its origin. Thus, we should take up and read. One more thing before we jump into Psalm 8, and we will get there, I promise. One, little, one more point of application. Since this is the word of God, another way that we treat it as the word of God is that we reverence it. Not that we worship the book, but it is God's word. And so that means if you ever hear yourself or someone else disrespecting the word of God, you should take note and defend it. It's one of the clear signs that you have a false teacher or false believer is someone who disrespects the word of God. The word of God stands over you. It corrects you. See, this book has many things that I don't understand, many things that you probably don't understand. But it's right and I'm wrong. Does that make sense? And this book has some things that I don't even agree with. If I'm honest, I don't agree with them. But guess who's right? That book. And if you're honest, there's probably some things in that book that you don't agree with. And you'll find out if you read it. Because you'll read it and it'll challenge you in some places. And it'll challenge some cultural assumptions. And it'll call into question some of the things that you have never even thought about and that you've assumed to be true. But then you have to ask yourself, are you going to stand over the book and judge the book or the book going to judge you? We should stand underneath the book. I'll give you some application. What does this look like? Well, it looks like this. When you open up the book, you read the first three chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What is the plain meaning of the text? That this world was created by the direct power of God. That he created it directly. That you are not an evolved ape, right? He created not just humanity by direct creation, but he created all the animals that way too. And yet, what do all the scientists say? They say something completely different, right? They teach Big Bang Theory, and they teach evolution. So you have two competing claims. You have God who is there, and his word that tells you one thing, and you have the scientific community that says something else. Who are you going to believe? Well, it depends on how you view the book. Is this book just a primitive book by a guy named Moses before the scientific revolution who doesn't know what he's talking about, giving you spiritual myths? Or is this the word of God telling you the truth? See, it matters. It all matters how you view this book. Are you going to stand under it or above it? If you're entertaining me, one other pastor, I don't want to steal your thunder, Neil, from your sermon next time. But what about homosexuality? We have a whole culture. Same love. What does the Bible say? It's a big pressure today. 
conform to the culture. Otherwise, be a bigot. But what does the scripture say? What does it say? Same abomination. Sexuality is supposed to be like this, not like that. You're going to believe your culture? Or are you going to believe the word of God? See, it all depends on how you treat this book. Is it a divine origin or human origin? Isaiah 8, 20 says, To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Don't stand above this book. Stand underneath it, even if you don't understand. And if you ever see a teacher, if it's me, anyone else, standing above this book, fight. Fight for the book. The book is true. We must believe the book. All right, let's go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. So, if you look at Psalm 8, it's a very small psalm. It only has nine verses. For the sake of time, we'll just hit some of the highlights. So if you look at verse 1, I'll just read it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Does anybody see a similarity between verse 1 and verse 9? The same thing. This is called book endings or an inclusio. And this type of figure of speech, this type of literary device is trying to tell you that this is the main point. It's really wonderful when they do that because it tells you this is the main point. The main point is how majestic is your name in all the earth. The main point of this passage is really the main point of our lives. The main point of Psalm 8 is the main point of our lives. There's a wonderful catechism question. What is the chief end of man? Hey, I heard somebody say it. I like it. Good job, kids. Good job, parents. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is exactly what the chief end of all creation is. We're part of creation. That's what this psalm is talking about. It's biblical. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So what this passage is saying is that God is so great, he can take the least of humanity and destroy his enemies by it. And that's really the story of Goliath. He takes a little boy and defeats a giant. This is what God does, the story of Gideon. He takes a tiny army and defeats a major army. This is what God does. He takes babies and destroys the strong. This is very similar to what the Jebusites said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6. This is what they said to David. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusite. That's David. But the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David could not come in here. They said, David, you'll never take the city. In fact, we can send out the blind and the lame. They'll take you down because you can never get into our city. That was their boast. Of course, they failed and David conquered the city. But God can actually take the blind and he can actually take the lame and he can actually take the babes and the small children and destroy the devil and all of his forces. All the forces of hell cannot stand against the little babes. By the way, who are the babes? Who are the blind? Who is the lame? That's you. That's you. God takes you, blind, weak, strange, nobody, and uses you to conquer the world. How's that for humility? That's what God says. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says, were many of you strong? Were many of you wise? Were many of you powerful? Were many of you rich? No. He takes that which is nothing to shame that which is. That's what God is the business of doing. That's what he does. He takes this little infant army, the children of God, our infants, and he takes those infant armies and shames the wise. All right, now let's look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
So you see what's going on there. This is probably David looking up without all the light pollution at night, looking up at the moon, looking up at the stars, probably seeing all 2,500 to 5,000 of these stars that he can see and sitting there trying to count them and realizing, wow, this is huge. This universe is ginormous. In light of all of that, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's what we began in the sermon. When you look out and realize how vast the universe is, how amazing it is, or maybe just realize that there's 7 billion people out there. Who am I among so many? How could God possibly care about us if we are literally smaller than dust in comparison to the cosmos? How could God care about us? And here's the wrong answer. The wrong answer is, but we're amazing pieces of dust. We're so incredible. We're so wonderful. We're so smart. We're so, that's the wrong answer. That's not the answer you should be concluding. You're just so amazing. The answer you should be concluding is, God is so amazing that he cares about dust like you. God cares about cosmic dust. We, through the eyes of faith, see this and think, God, you're amazing. You're so amazing. You created all this. You're so powerful. You're so wonderful, and yet you care about me. Others, through the, the eyes of unbelief, actually use that same very data to teach atheism and to argue against God. Did you know that? But you kids, you people in college, you'll see this. You just go and just wait. You'll see this argument pop up. People actually point to the size of the universe and the complexity of the universe and actually try to use that very fact to deny God's existence, even though this is in our Bible. Isn't that amazing? And by the way, they're not just denying that God exists. They don't really care about that. They want to deny specifically that the Christian God exists. It's incredible. They look at that same data that David says and says, he's not mindful of us. David says, how amazing God is that he is mindful of us. Who are you going to believe? They try to capture this argument of the scientific community. You guys know Bill Nye, the science guy? Especially you 90 kids. You remember that. Well, here's what Bill Nye, the science guy, who's not really a scientist, but he does believe in scientism, the religion of science. He said this. He said, I am insignificant. I am just another speck of sand. The earth, really, in the cosmic scheme of things, is another speck. And the sun, a rather unremarkable star. And the galaxy is a speck. And I'm a speck on a speck orbiting a speck among other specks, among still other specks in the middle of specklessness. I am worthless. That was his argument. Here's basic his argument. I'm just tiny speck on a speckless universe where none of it matters. There's no way God could care about me in light of the vastness of the universe. He couldn't. I'm just too insignificant. And therefore, because there's no way God could care about me because I'm so insignificant, then therefore the Christian God must not exist. That's his argument. I hope you see the contrast. The atheist looks at the size of the universe and says, there can't be a God. The Christian looks at the size of the universe and says, wow, God cares about me. It all depends on whether you look at it from the eyes of faith or the eyes of unbelief. All looking at the same data but coming to very different conclusions. All right, let's look at verse five through eight, a little time we have. So despite the universe being so huge, and yet God in his amazingness caring about us, we see in verse five to eight, he describes humanity. He says, yet you have crowned him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes among the paths of the sea. 
So here we have the psalmist describing man, and he's describing him in an exalted state. He says that he's a little lower than the angels. That's meant to be a compliment, that the angels are glorious and amazing. They're personal beings. They have names. They talk. They have wills. They're persons. And yet man is just a little bit lower than him. What does that mean? We're a little bit lower in the status, right? There's, there's dirt and rocks. They're pretty much the lowest. You get a little bit above that, and you get the trees and the grass. A little bit above that, you get the worms. A little bit above that, the mammals, right? You, you see this? A little bit above that, you get humanity. A little bit above that, you get angels. And of course, above them all is who? God. God's the highest. So man, in the pecking order, I know some people don't realize that, but guess what? That's what it says. In the pecking order, you're under angels. That's true. Some of you might say, oh, that's a bummer. Well, there's good news here. But you're above all of creation, but below humanity, who, of course, is all above, uh, below God. So then he describes man. First, he describes him in verse 5. You're a little lower than the angels. Then he says that you've crowned him with glory and honor, and then talks about his dominion over the face of all of creation. Now, when I read this, my mind immediately goes back to Genesis where God created man in a glorious state where he was dominating creation. And that's where I want to go. But let's, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, we see that the author of Hebrews doesn't go that direction. He doesn't say, yes, that was referring to man in his pre-fallen state, but now we're in a fallen state. He doesn't know that. He says this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, Actually, let's, let's go down to verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For, in that you put all in subjection under him, you have left nothing that is not put under him, but we do not see all things put under him. See that? He says, when we look at man, we don't see this. We don't see this reality. Glorious? Yeah, not really. Some people, but not most of us. Most of us are falling out of our prime and falling apart. Most of us are conquering Nature, most of us are conquered by nature. We're dying, we're getting old, we get sick, right? Nature is conquering us. How much are we trying to fight nature? Nature seems to be winning. He says, this doesn't seem to be true of us. We don't see everything in subjection to him. But what do we see? We see Christ. We see Christ reigning on the throne. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So what we don't see is man in a glorified state, but what we do see is Jesus. Of course, we don't see that with the physical eyes, but we see the eyes of faith that Jesus, who was made a little bit lower than the angels, that is him taking on human flesh, dying for all of us, and rising from the dead in a glorious state. And now Jesus is glorified and he's received glory and honor. And here's the point of all this, that Jesus now in this glorified state, is, of course, more glorious than the angels. Isn't that obvious? If you looked at Jesus pre-death, burial, and resurrection, you look at an angel, who is more glorious? Just see Jesus as a baby, little baby pictures of Jesus, and see an angel. Which one is going to be more glorious? Pretty obvious, right? But now, in his glorified state, look at Jesus in his glorious state, and you can see that description in the book of Revelation, and you see a picture of that in the transfiguration, and look at an angel who's more glorious. Obviously, Jesus. He has received, he has now been crowned with glory and honor. That's why we call it glorification. He's received a glorified body. That's what it means. And so now, that's what we see. 
But the point of all of this is saying this, that Psalm 8 doesn't just point back to where man used to be, but where man is going. Because this passage is saying, we currently don't see mankind, human humanity, in a state of glory and honor, and in a state of subjecting all of creation. But we do see is Jesus in a state of glory and honor in all of creation subjected to him because he's at the right hand of the Father. And what he's going to argue in his whole point here is this, that what Jesus did by conquering the world, the flesh, and the devil, and his glorification is a foretaste of our glorification. And one day we will see Psalm 8 not just hyperbolically fulfilled in us, not just in some spiritualization of how we're over creation and we're glorious and we're honorable, but we'll see it actually come to fruition in us. This is the hope. This is that forward-looking eschatological view that we're talking about. This is what the Bible says everywhere. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's not just spiritual words. That's a true reality. These present sufferings, disappointments, frustrations are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And what is that glory? I really want you guys to see this. I know we're wrapping up time, but we'll be down here. I really want you to see this. I want you to look in the mirror at yourself, whether you like it or not. Whether you like it, it doesn't matter. Or you, do, or you don't like it, it doesn't matter. That is not glorious in comparison to what you will look like. You see that? Christ is glorious, and you will look like him. And if you, that's exactly what our text says. I mean, the Bible says that everywhere. But let me just show you a place right there in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see what's going on there? Humanity and the author's mind of Hebrews is saying it's not glorious. Jesus and his glorification is glorious. And guess what? He died and rose again so that you could partake in that glory. That's good news. That's wonderful. If you really get a hold of that, it'll change everything. We should set our eyes on Christ who is glorious, set our eyes on his immortal kingdom and his glorification and realize that we too will receive that glorification in him. And when you really get your eyes on that, everything looks really, really different. Everything looks so shallow and small and empty. All the riches in the world seem like nothing when you realize that one day we will be like Christ and we will be in his glory, in his body, in his health. Right? All the trips to the gym, never going to achieve that. All the financial planning and savvy investing, never going to achieve those riches. All of the trips to GNC and all the diet programs, never going to give you the kind of body that Christ will give you. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? You don't have to be sold another lie, buy another product. You don't have to be coveting and jealous of other people. Christ is going to make you glorious in his own time. Now, that's good news. Now, let's conclude with this wonderful quote from Spurgeon. Here's what he said. Under our feet, we must keep the world, and we must shun the base spirit, which is content to let the worldly cares and pleasures sway us from the empire of the immortal soul. It's hard to read long quotes because it's easy for you to forget them. But he's saying this. Don't let this base and evil spirit of the world blind you. All the cares and the pleasures of the world blind you to the immortal empire of the immortal soul. Isn't that amazing? 
to think about that? All these people who like Star Wars and all these movies about empires, you have an immortal empire in Christ. That's our good news. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you are an immortal king who give us an immortal kingdom, Lord. We ask that we would set our eyes on you, that we would rest our hope in that future salvation, Lord, that we would stop our coveting, stop our anger, stop our frustration, that we would be able to look past this life and its difficulty and its pain and all of those things and set our eyes fully on you. We thank you that we can rejoice in our salvation fully in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.